there's the de facto theme. As a matter of fact, I think that's what we should call it, the de facto theme. That's nice. I like that. What does de facto mean? Do you know? Uh, one of those things that it's like, could you explain it? Let's see. I use it all the time. De facto. In fact or in effect, whether by right or not. Oh, so it is definitely the de facto theme. Yeah, it's like the go-to. Whether it should be the go-to or not, it's the go-to. I get it. It is what it is. It is what it is. I just saw something where some some film or, or TV show where they were complaining about certain phrases, and one of the phrases was, it is what it is. But, yeah. But I can't... That, that was a phrase to hate recently. I feel like last year that was pissing people off. It is what it is. Yeah. Being overused. Okay. Was it maybe on the last episode of uh, Difficult People? Did they riff on It Is What It Is? No. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that, but maybe it was something else. Mm. Hi, Kate Skelsa. Hello, Vince Skelsa. You and... know the episode of Difficult People that Mom freaked out over, and I'm sure you did too, was a couple episodes back that was about how... Um, everything that made Julie an unacceptable New York Jew made her the perfect <laughs> New Jersey Italian. New Jersey Italian, yeah. She got in touch with her inner Italian. And the and, hair just uh, kept getting bigger. Yeah. On coming out day, she she came out right. as, she, as Italian. She identified <laughs> as Italian. It's a really good show. Right. It's on Hulu. Yeah, the hair gets bigger and bigger. You're right. Hair gets bigger. But they all then, know how to eat. They don't judge her for just eating all the time. Yeah, yeah. They think she's hilarious. They, they laugh think she's at so all the time. Yeah. But then finally, she and Billy, her her gay best friend, um, they give themselves away a by knowing uh, who Liza Minnelli is. Well, he's pretending that he just came out because yeah. he's realizing that he can have more success as a gay man if he pretends to have only be newly out of the closet. Right, right. She's pretending to be Italian, and he's pretending that he just came out of the closet. And uh, he's hitting on the really good-looking stud-like brother of one of the women who she's palling up with. Yeah, so, he was played by um, Mark... What's his name? Mark Consuelos, who is Kelly Ripa's Husband. Oh really? Yeah, so it was pretty clever. Casting. Speaking speaking of uh, of gay guys, um, yes, I've I've been reading this book. <laughs> speaking of gay guys, <laughs> how are all your friends? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, well, you know. No, of, yeah, tell me more about this book. You were this me this about incredible before. book called uh, Christodora. Which is the name of a building on Lower East Side, right next to Tompkins Square Park. It overlooks Tompkins Square Park. It's a real place that was built in the early 20th century and uh, has had a number of different incarnations over the years. And I guess now it's uh, like a condo, you know, like a luxury condo place sure, or something. Yeah. And uh, so, so this guy Tim Murphy, who's the the writer who is a journalist, this is his first novel, he's taken this building and invented 
this group of interrelated characters over the course of like uh, four decades from the 80s until now going through everything that anybody who lived in that area at the time, the Lower East Side of New York, went through. Mm -hmm. the, the Tompkins Square riots, uh, you know, when people were were basically like squatting in Tompkins Square back before anything got gentrified. Um, the various art worlds, it seems to be that, that eight, the 80s art world right now is a subject for a lot of... Uh, a lot of literature and uh and this this family this this husband and wife and their adopted son and all of the interrelated characters whose lives are touched by them and it's so beautiful and so so much fun to read and mm -hmm. yet it's incredibly um sad at times and it makes you angry at times cuz it, it rehashes the whole way that uh, the the governmental world and society at large responded to the beginnings of and the early years of the gay crisis before anybody was really trying to do anything about it uh, yeah, the gay cri i mean the aids crisis uh, not the gay crisis the aids crisis well it was gay yeah. um and and it's just uh I i'm about a little more than halfway through so yeah. you know, there's still it still could disappoint me, but I don't think it will. I think this, <laughs> did it just come out? It Is just it? came out. Yeah, okay. he's a guy who writes for a lot of the the gay publications and has won all sorts of awards and stuff. But he also writes for for New York Magazine and um, you know a lot of straight press as well. Yeah, and uh, well, if you call New York Magazine straight press, uh, well, yeah. Pretty gay. Uh, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole other topic. <laughs> um, what is our topic today? Do oh we... well, then I want to talk about. I'm reading the book you gave me about the sun also rises. Oh yeah, how is that? It's really good. It's called "Everybody Behaves Badly," which is a quote from the book. And I have this relationship with that book because we we have a show of it. That we're doing again of, of he Hemingway's book, The Sun yeah, Also Rises. The Sun Also Rises. And we're doing that show in Washington. The spring, late winter. I should look it up. But um, I think February, March in DC. Right. We're doing our version of The Sun Also Rises. And you're doing a pretty long run, right? Like a... I think we're doing a five or six week wow. run. So, so this, this new book is about. The real characters who became the fictional characters in Hemingway's novel. That's right. So, and about him writing it. And it's really interesting. I don't know if it would be as interesting to someone who didn't know the book as well. Mm. But I am just finding it totally fascinating. Great. Have you discovered uh, a woman who is the, um, the basis for the character that you play? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. No, there's no argument about who that is. Who was this woman named Kitty? And all of the girlfriends reportedly thought Hemingway was this huge fake. I mean, he was like 24 at the time. Mm. And he was a huge social climber. And he was um, very opportunistic and had this whole macho persona mm. that really charmed all the men around him, like, because they were all these 
kind of wimpy writer dudes. And then Hemingway would be like, let's go boxing. <laughs> and they'd be like, yeah, Hemingway wants to go boxing. Right, We're right, so right. manly. Let's... And the girlfriends all saw, like, through this. And, you know, Zelda included, and then this woman, Kitty, they were all like, this guy's a little fake. He's mm. going to drop you as soon as he has any success, which is exactly what happened. So Kitty was one of the girlfriends who didn't like Hemingway. Mm-hmm. And that was his revenge so on her, is she... that he wrote her as this, like, shrewish right. monster. Right. She wasn't... But he evidently ruined, like, everybody's lives. Mm. He just fully used all of these friends that he had made in Paris, used their exact history, used verbatim conversations. And it's one of the reasons the book is so good is because it's really catty and gossipy. Yeah, yeah. But it just, he had no um, qualms about just completely feeling for no life. And he had been a reporter, so he remembered everything that had happened. Mm. And he was taking notes and... That was what he did. And I think it's so much better than his other book because it's about real life, I guess. I don't know. That must be the explanation. Because his other books bore me to Yeah, I don't... I have not tried to reread Sun Also Rises, but I have tried to go back and read some of the others. And yeah, I I find them to be very boring now. Um, And hard to read, even though he's famous for being um you know writing simple declarative sentences you know and not a lot of flowery language or adjectives or anything right. like that but yeah i i don't know hemingway i think is is uh he's going to lose over time i think he already has lost some of the veneer of brilliance that he was uh uh that that you know grew up around him after World War Two, but see, Sun Also Rises takes place between the wars, right? Right. It's after he was like an ambulance guy, mm-hmm. with and and hanging around with the Lincoln Brigade and stuff. But he wasn't really part of the Lincoln Brigade. He was a writer, a journalist covering yeah. the, the uh, Spanish Civil War. And uh, but so the book takes place before the Spanish Civil War, I think, though. Because that his his Spanish Civil War book is uh, for whom the bell tolls, right? That's the Spanish Civil War. Well, he had what I'm learning from this book. Everybody behaves badly. Is that he had all the aspirations that he later had with his work, which is I'm doing this really new stylistic thing, these declarative sentences, this modernist, you know, reinvention of how what writing should be like. But with The Sun Also Rises, his trick was going to be, okay, but I'm going to write a book that on its surface seems kind of gossipy and just salacious, but I'll elevate it. Like, I was just reading this part about how he had written a whole prologue um, just talking about the lost generation and, and explaining why his book was important. You know, like, this isn't just gossip. These people are lost souls and this is mm-hmm. this is very deep and he ended up only just keeping the little uh epigram epigram or epigraph i never remember which one it is mm-hmm. so that was just gertrude sign saying you're all a lost generation which of course you know yes 
you don't need a prologue telling us that your book is important. Like, maybe leave that out. Yeah, right. But that he managed to do this tricky thing of write something that was going to be popular because it was a fun, gossipy story, but then insist that because of his style, he was ele- and he was elevating it. I mean, he elevated that story into something really beautiful and that now does have a lot of meaning for how we think about that period of time and that generation. Mm. But he was a, like, yeah, he was I, a, I mean, he just did not give a fuck. Yeah, he was a nasty guy. He went no, through went through women. Impressive. Yeah, he went through women and and uh, hurt a lot of people, male and female. And it's like this is when he was still young, so he was still you know kissing the right asses and establishing himself. Mm-hmm. So he, it's really it's fascinating. It's his first novel. I mean, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable book. Sun also rises is his mm-hmm. first novel. He had a collection of short stories that came out before it. And then the other thing is his first first novel was Lost. Really? Physically Lost? It's this crazy story where his wife was coming to meet him from Paris, and I can't remember where he was, but he he was meeting with some editor who was interested in his work. But she was just supposed to come meet up with him just because he wanted to see her. And it was her idea... She packed all of his writing in a bag and bring it with her. Mm. Literally, the only copy of all of his stories and the manuscript of his first novel. And she took it on the train with her. And at one point, she got off the train to go buy something. And she came back and it was gone. Wow. Jeez. But then it became this apocryphal, like, it was probably terrible. It was probably a terrible book. (laughs) So he got to kind of erase all of these first embarrassing attempts at his work and have this clean slate. Boy, his his life could have been entirely different had that not happened. Yeah. That first book could have been, like you said, awful, and it would have been published, and it would have done nothing, and he would have disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I know. It's so crazy. Oh. There's a lot about his story that is pretty fascinating, mm-hmm. and also the way in which people really went to bat for him, and even Fitzgerald. I mean, he talked shit about everybody, and he would later, you know, he didn't think anyone was any good. And all these people made introductions for him, and you know, insisted editors consider his work and gave him blurb. And mm. it was because he was really charming and mm. really fun. Mm-hmm. And he managed to get really far in life because of that. And, and it's also and, really fascinating, and you get this from reading The Sun Also Rises, to look at this group of people that some of them are legitimately wealthy or like, or come from wealth and have somehow lost it or like have an allowance. And Hemingway didn't come from wealth, but his, his wife had an allowance that she would get. But there are these people who are really glorifying the idea of living in poverty in Paris. Mm-hmm. And they're this kind of moneyed, you know, it's, it's very romantic to them to live in poverty. It's and, uh, uh, it's it's Bohemia. 
That's Bohemian. Yeah, right. That never changes. It seems <laughs> like there's always that 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 wealthy class of young person who uh, uh, lives that kind of life for a while and and, and then uh, goes on to become normal. Right. <laughs> oh, now I'm looking it up. We're going to be at the Shakespeare Theater Company in D.C. February 18th through April 2nd. With our show is called The Select. That's a long run. That's nice. I know. It's a six-week, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we haven't done a long run of that show in a long time. So it's fun to read this book because it's giving me kind of uh, another way in. Because when you do a show for so long, it uh, runs the risk of kind of atrophying yeah, sure. your brain. And that's one of the three... Um, books from the 20th century male bastion of American literature that that yeah. elevator repair service did in in this series. The others being, of course, The Great Gatsby, Gats, which everybody sort of knows about. Yeah. Um, and uh, the first chapter of Faulkner's... The Sound of the Fury. Sound of the Fury, yeah. Pretty heavy yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's good because I never read these books in college. I mean, I read The Great Gatsby in high school, mm. but I just never had a desire to take, you know, great American canon class. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been nice as an adult to have a reason to learn about them. Sure. But this Everybody Behaves Badly, if anyone's interested in Hemingway, it's a, it's a pretty fun read. What's the author's name? Her name is... Amazon open on my computer. Oh. Your mother just found out that Amazon uh, Amazon has a food shopping service. Oh, God. <laughs> she's, accept- she's finally accepting the overlords. Yeah. Or she, Amazon overlords. She's, uh, yeah, she's like, mm-hmm. she's like d- directly mainlining Amazon. Now. <laughs> so, no. So, um, Leslie M.M. Bloom is the name of the author. Okay, Leslie M. M. Bloom. Cool. Okay. And 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 have you told the others in the cast about it? Or are you going to pass it around? When, yeah, when I'll have to bring it with me to D.C. Yeah. I feel like it's a fun sure. backstage read. And now, this is our... We haven't even introduced our podcast. <laughs> we got all caught up. This is episode 12. We haven't done a, a, a podcast in a while. And we've had a lot of... Um, Technical problems. Yeah, a lot of technical problems. And then just some emotional problems. Oh, these things happen, you know. But we're well, here. We're, we've survived. You know. We've survived. And, and hopefully, technically, this one will work out. I hope It's just so. a little harder if we do it over the phone and I don't come out and sit across from you. Yeah. But, but, but you know, we're making it work. Yeah. Okay. You live in Brooklyn, for heaven's sake. You don't want to have to schlep all the way out to New Jersey. I know. Very far away. Especially in the summertime. You know, That's right. Hot and sweaty and <laughs> humid and all that. Well, we were, our last technical difficulty happened when we were in the middle of talking more radio. Yeah, because one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is 
that you've been um, getting me to talk about the things that have gone into my career now that I'm retired after 47, 48 years of doing radio in the New York area. You've uh, you've gotten me into doing like a, an oral history. Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of tickled that, that you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know if anybody else is, but I'm... Um, you know, it's it's cool. We'll do, Some you know. people seem to be. Yeah. Well, I've gotten a couple uh, nudging messages and emails saying, "When's the next podcast?" When's the next one? Get him when's off it? his ass and have him I know. do something. So, all right. So, you wanna you wanna talk about PLJ, my my WABC? Yeah, let's talk experience. about PLJ a little bit. My first uh, foray into the world of um, big time commercial radio in New York. Yeah. In 1970, I think the last time we talked about the career rather than some other side thing, I had um, I had just left the the teaching job that I had for about a month and a half at a a, a little um, Catholic grammar school in Elizabeth, right. New Jersey, uh, called the Bender Academy, which is no longer there. All the schools that I've been involved with, except for Marist High, my high school. Oh, Kate. Yeah. I, Marist High is putting me in their Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you funny. have to come. You have to come to the dinner in November. I will. But there's going to be a big dinner at Marist, which was my high school in Bayonne. And uh, after ignoring me for, you know, 50 years, I got <laughs> I got a phone call from Principal Alice. Because Maris is like a, it was a, it was a boys' school, Catholic high school, right. uh, run by the Maris brothers. But at some point along the way, they went co-ed, and the brothers no longer do the hands-on running of it. They still own it, but it's um, uh, it's it's run by a group of secular people now. Okay. Uh, and uh, so the principal, in back in the day when I was there, you'd never would would even conceive of having a female principal for a school like that. But Principal right. Alice called me and she said some people have been talking about me for years and it's finally gotten around to I've been nominated for the the Hall of Fame, the Wall Amazing. of Fame. They're going to put my picture up and everything. What an honor. Yeah, really. But that's like the only school that <laughs> that I've been involved with that still actually exists. Right. Uh, Bender Academy is gone, and Uppsala College is is uh, is gone. Are you sure it's complex that you closed down school? No, I I know it has absolutely nothing to do with me. I just <laughs> I just like to you know consider the fact. Uh, so so right around the time that I realized I didn't have what it what it uh, took to be a teacher, that I do you think if you had felt like you had what it that you would have continued? No, I don't think so. I don't. It was just something to do in between jobs, yeah, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, I wanted, I wanted it to work, mm -hmm. but I sort of knew right from the get-go that it wasn't going to. I wanted to be Mr. Cool Guy teacher who everybody would love, you know, and I'd be their best friend and that whole thing. And and that's no way to be a teacher. Right. You know, and and uh I mean there there are those that would argue that my whole career in radio has been as a 
a teacher, you know, sure. um, that un- unbeknownst to me, I've actually um, succeeded in that vocation. Mm-hmm. But uh, a, an actual teacher of of kids, preteen and teenage kids, you know, I was like the seventh and eighth grade language arts teacher. Uh, I don't think it would have worked out in the long run. So luckily, I got a phone call from Larry Yurden, who was this guy who had been involved with the FMU experience and who had been hired by ABC Radio to uh, to be a consultant because the ABC Radio Network wanted to get more involved in this new burgeoning underground countercultural world. Right. Um, this is post Woodstock. Now I've gone on record many times over the years as saying that. As far as I'm concerned, Woodstock marked the end of all the interesting stuff that was going on in the 60s, not the beginning, um, because the corporations looked at Woodstock. We've talked about this before, looked at Woodstock and said, ah, how can we co-opt this? How can we make money? How can we get this audience to buy stuff from us? Right. And ABC was sort of one of those big corporations who said, well, let's see what we can do here. So they had been they had a um, a tape service that went out to their O&O's. O&O's is uh, uh, stands for for owned and operated. The networks at that time both had O&Os, there were like eight or ten of them, they were limited in the number of stations they could actually own. Um, That all changed in the 90s when Clinton sort of gave away the airwaves that are supposed to belong to the people, Mm -hmm. uh, gave it away to, uh, you know, the big corporations. But still back in the early 70s, there there was... um, there was a prohibition on how many stations they could own and, and operate. And then they would also sell their programming to independent stations, which, of course, is, you know, goes on still to this day. The networks that still exist, ABC is one of them, um, mostly with, with TV, not so much with radio anymore. They have stations that they own uh, and operate, and then they uh, syndicate their shows to whoever whoever wants them mm-hmm. and whoever is going to pay for them you know? so they had this syndicated taped service it was a guy who called himself brother john and brother john had a format that was called love this was <laughs> like this you know flower power mid-60s summer of love hippy dippy kind of radio thing uh-huh. And it was moderately successful, and it ran in New York on uh, WABC-FM, which was their FM station. Now, their AM station was this huge blockbuster top 40 station, WABC. Um, the FM station eventually changed its call letters because they felt like they were losing out in the ratings game because people would say they listened to WABC and they meant WABC-FM. Right. But 
WABC was the name for WABC AM. The people who were being surveyed were not making any distinction. So whenever they said ABC, the AM got the credit for it. So the call letters were eventually changed to WPLJ. WPLJ is the title of an old rhythm and blues song. It stands for White Port and Lemon Juice. <laughs> um, Frank Zappa had just done a new version of the song, and it was um, my friend who I first met at ABC FM slash PLJ, Dave Herman, who suggested that that become the uh, that that would be perfect call letters for uh, a hip, cool radio station in New York, WPLJ. So what are the rules about call letters? Like, can they just be any? Well, I mean, it has to be a it W. U it used to be that east of the Mississippi, the call letters began with a W. Okay. West of the Mississippi, the call letters began with a K. I don't know why. Uh and gradually, over the years, the call letters became less and less important. I guess it was beginning in the mid to late 80s, stations started giving themselves names. Right. You know, and the names would become the identity for the station. Or sometimes the frequency would become, oh, I listen to 101, you know. Right. I listen to 99 point whatever, you know. Um, the call letters were not important, but when I started in radio, call letters were magical. That's why when I finally got to WNEWFM after PLJ, a couple of years later, I was I was in heaven because for me those call letters were like the epitome of of New York classy, uh, extraordinary radio. WNEWAM. Right. And it just, by extension, that all fell to WNEW-FM as well. But we're getting ahead of the game. <laughs> so, uh, so what they were, what they were d deciding to do, there was this guy, Alan Shaw. He was a vice president of ABC radio in charge of the O&Os and in charge of their, their programming. Uh, he wanted to get rid of this taped, brother john love format and bring in a much hipper group of people to uh program a, a, a really kind of a radical visionary sort of radio like what we were doing at fmu and like what was going on on little stations both non-commercial like fmu was and commercial like so many stations around the country um, for a couple of years prior to 1970. Shaw wanted to, like, take that idea and somehow make it work in a commercial, corporate, very conservative world. ABC at the time, the corporation, was very conservative. They were like, you know, uh, cheerleaders for, for, for Richard Nixon and uh, the Republican Party, very, uh, very right of center. And he was proposing this very radical left of center thing for the... Was F that going to be allowed just because it was FM, so no one really cared? Yeah, yeah, I think... They didn't know that it was really that important. They didn't, they didn't, 
they didn't pay attention to it. The real, like the head guys, you know, the top big corporate guys were willing to let somebody experiment with the FM stations because FM still didn't make any money for anybody in 1970. That was all about to change over the course of the next two or three years. But when Alan Shaw hired Larry Yurton, this freaky hip kid from, from South Orange, New Jersey, who had been all over the country for a couple of years spreading the word about freeform radio like Johnny Appleseed. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Shaw hired him, he really you know, believed in what he was doing and felt that he had the wherewithal to make it be commercially viable. And nobody knew yet that that wasn't going to work. <laughs> you know, somebody had to try it and fail, and he was the guy who tried it and failed and then succeeded at um, taking away all of the freedom and all of the eclecticism and all of the um, the overt uh, political o- overtones uh, and, and turned it into a, a commercial uh, behemoth. Uh, you know, where where now finally the the suits in the upper offices um, did finally pay attention, but in the fall of 1970, things were still undefined. So Larry's job as a consultant was to get people who he had met in the previous couple of years in his travels around the country, get them involved with ABC and with the local stations, the O&Os, basically. Now, I said they owned like about 10 stations, and those 10 stations were each one of them in one of the major radio markets. So if if that was all they did was have their programming on 10 stations, they were bound to be very influential back then. This Mm -hmm. is pre-internet, pre-computers, pre-iPods, pre, you know, pre-everything. Radio was still, um, especially FM radio, was still an unproven giant waiting to be born. And it could... why, why were the AM stations more important? What was the... AM stations had, just by the nature of their technical, um, their bandwidth, I've never understood it. No, they were more powerful. They could blanket and reach large parts of the country. The, The most famous of the AM stations were the ones just across the border, the Texas border in Mexico. This is where um, uh, the uh, Carter family, you know, uh, mm-hmm. got their fame when they worked for Texas Border Radio. Those stations were not only AM, but they didn't have to obey any of the restrictive um, limitations that the FCC put on power. So they oh. they could literally, some of them reached almost three quarters of North America, <laughs> blasting like a million watts right. out of these radio transmitters and towers along the Texas-Mexican border. So WABC in New York 
pretty much hit most of the east coast of of uh, America. Oh wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, especially late at night, you could tune you could sit as a as a kid. I sat and tuned in AM radio stations from, you know, Wheeling, West Virginia and places wow. all over the south, you know, if you were in Chicago, you would sit and if the atmosphere was right, you could get radio from from Nashville and you could get radio from California and you know, it was amazing. So FM was just small change. FM FM was a it was a different kind of operating frequency. I've never been technically um you know, hip to what the difference is, but it didn't put out the same amount of power, but what FM had was the ability to be stereo. Right. And it also had a much cleaner signal. You know, FM, there's that famous song, no static at all uh, on FM radio. Mm -hmm. So FM radio was perfect for this this new music that was happening in the in the 60s and was continuing on into the 70s where musicians were really paying careful attention to the audio quality of their work um prior to that if you were putting putting out a record and it was going to your intention was that it was going to be a single that would be played on top 40 radio you mixed it as loudly and as crappily as you could because mm-hmm. that's that's how most people were going to listen to it on their dinky car radios or on their dinky little portable uh, radios when they went out to the beach in the summertime. Yeah. The quality was not important. Suddenly, the quality became important and FM radio, which until the mid-60s was basically doing um just a simulcast of whatever the AM stations were doing you know the uh, a, a company would own both the AM and the FM station and they'd basically play the same programming on both and if you had an FM radio well it sounded a little better on FM right. the, the only original programming on FM radio besides college type educational radio was classical because uh-huh. classical had the ability to take advantage of the the sound quality, where there wasn't static, there wasn't noise. If you could get, if you could receive a clear signal on a good stereo receiver, then you you know were able to listen to classical music in a much friendlier way than you could on AM radio. Uh-huh. So it was just being learned now what FM could do and that there was a burgeoning audience for FM up until the, the middle to to late sixties cars didn't have FM radios. They only had AM radios in them. That's so crazy. Yeah. And FM radios were not, I mean, I bought my first FM radio in 1967 or 68 67, I guess. I had listened to some FM radio because one of my cousins, who was like a tech freak, you know, he had the first like stereo system in the family and all that. He had a an FM receiver. And I knew about him, but I didn't actually go out and buy one. What was the thing where you thought the word was AM and FM? Yeah, that I thought that was a word. When I listened to WNEW, 
AM when I was a kid. It was like, you know, my dad's favorite radio station. They would identify it as WNEW AM and FM. And I thought AM and FM was a word. <laughs> AM and FM. AM and FM. Uh, yeah. A M A N D E F E M. A M and FM. <laughs> Some technical word, you know? Yeah. So Larry Yurden got me hired by his sheer recommendation. Um, was enough to get me hired at WABC AM. So I didn't work for the network. I worked for the local radio station in New York, but we were in the same building okay. as the network, including the TV network um, on on uh, 6th Avenue and like 52nd or 3rd, somewhere around there. The, 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 buildings, the buildings for the three major networks, which were CBS, NBC and ABC were all sort of in the same district. NBC was Rockefeller Center. Uh, CBS was this building called Black Rock because it was a big black high rise on 6th Avenue. It was a couple of blocks south of the ABC building, which was across the street from, I want to say, the Hilton or the one of those big hotels on 6th Avenue. Anyhow, it was like, that was that was the world of of commercial broadcasting in uh in the 60s and and early 70s um and then you had the the advertising agencies up and down Madison Avenue which was the mad men right. era you know of that TV show so i got hired by abc fm to be um a production person I was like, um, I think my official title was public service director or something like that. I was the guy who put together all of the public service announcements that radio stations still had to do in those days. You had to literally prove to the FCC that you were giving time to the community that you broadcast in. And so one crazy. one of the ways to do that was by running these free public service announcements. Mm -hmm. And they would be everything from, you know, uh, smoking organization, you know, anti-smoking stuff and and uh, the March of Dimes, you know, and all that kind of stuff. They They all got free publicity because it helped the radio stations fill their their diaries of what they were doing for public service news was considered public service so in those days it wasn't just a there were no 24-hour news channels every radio station did the news right you know they did five minutes or ten minutes every hour or every every two or three hours it depended but news was part of the public service requirement sunday morning was given over to um to discussion shows, uh, religion being the obvious one, but also political and social, cultural things. That's that's what the Sunday morning ghetto was all about. And that's why I was eventually so successful on Sunday morning was because still, by the time I got to NEW in the mid-70s, um, Sunday morning was still kind of uh, no man's land for right. really cool radio. So if uh you know, if you were up and and looking for something and you found me, well you were gonna 
stick with me because there wasn't much else on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And have a lot of choices. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my, my job. Plus, I was capable of doing fill-in work, and eventually they gave me a show because as they gradually cut back on the pre-recorded stuff, they had guys in each city pre-recording stuff that went out. So, for instance, Dave Herman would do a show for the network, and then he would also do a live show in New York. There was a guy named Michael Cascuna who did the morning show who became a real jazz um, creative guy in jazz production years later and still to this day. He would do a recorded show for the network and a live show in 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 New York. Uh, there was a guy named Mike Turner who came out of Detroit. Same thing. He would record for the network and a live show in Detroit, and eventually he came to New York. Um, and when they're recording for the network, are they recording hours of programming, or they're just recording interstitial stuff? I don't remember now. I think they were actually recording hours of programming. I don't think that we had the ability yet to do just the voice recording, but I'm not sure. I, I was not involved with that aspect of things. So I think they were working a lot of hours. Right. But the famous um, the, the famous Dave Herman story is that he was uh, working in Philadelphia at a radio station called WMMR. Dave was a bit older than some of us. He was like maybe 10 years older. He was more like, like uh, you know, your Uncle Louie. He was more like yeah. your, your Uncle Louie's generation. And he had gotten started in radio as a more straightforward kind of middle of the road, almost like a Jonathan Schwartz kind of guy, you know, not, not, not Jonathan. There's only one Jonathan Schwartz, but, (laughs) you know, and then he went into top 40 radio and then he, um, he started smoking marijuana and he got turned on to acid and suddenly he became the Marconi Experiment, that was the name of his show in Philadelphia on WMMR. He became like the hippie king of Philadelphia. Okay. And Alan Shaw wanted him desperately. He either wanted him to, to be in Philadelphia, but what he really wanted him to do was to come to New York, record for the network, and be on the flagship station of the network, WABC-FM. Right. And the story that, as Dave would tell it, is that the more they wooed him and the more they tried to promise the world to him, the more he turned them down. He was like, no, I don't want to leave. I'm the king of Philadelphia here. I'm like, everybody knows me. I'm like a rock star here. You know, what do I want to go to New York for and work with the the conservative network of Howard K. Smith, the news guy who was like uh, everybody thought was like a Nixon crony. You know, I don't want to I don't want to do that. I don't want to leave, you know, my. So. uh, They finally made him an offer that was just so overwhelmingly out of his experience that he, um, you know, he discussed it with his wife and she was like, you know, she was just the same kind of radical lifestyle person that he was, his first wife, Jane. 
And, uh, you know, she was like, it's hard to turn this down, but I think you should turn it down because, you know, we're going to be corrupted if we go to New York. It's it's not going to work. You know, you last a year and then it'll, you know, then what are we going to do? So he literally went to see a gypsy. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he and he he went to see a gypsy fortune teller. And oh my God. whatever she told him, it convinced him that he finally had to say yes to them. Amazing. And he became one of the highest paid radio people before the Howard Stern's of the world came along and booted that kind of pay thing into the, you know, the stratosphere. Yeah. They had the same agent. Don Buckwald was his name. Herman and, 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 uh, Howard and, and Imus and all the, the like heavy hitters who came of age in the late seventies and into the eighties in yeah. uh, mostly talk radio. But Dave right. Dave was one of the few guys in music radio who had uh, a similar kind of um, financial situation because he just kept turning them down. <laughs> and, oh they, and they wanted him so badly that every time they turned them down, they came up with more. Because he had already accomplished in Philadelphia what they were looking for, right? Yes. Which is the making this counterculture phenomenon mainstream and profitable uh yeah not so much you wouldn't you wouldn't call it mainstream yet but but profitable yeah he was making it profitable um they were reaching the right audience there and he was a dynamic enough personality that he was he was his personality was as important as what he was doing you know, playing as as the music was. It's the same thing with, with me and with a lot of the people who came of age then in radio. It was very hard to separate the individual from the music. Right. And that's part of what kept me going um, for all the years that I that I was able to, you know, maintain a career in New York was that, you know, other people could play the music, but nobody could... Nobody had my personality, and my personality influenced the way the music was programmed by me. So nobody else could do that. There was only one me. Right. There was only one Dave Herman. There was only one Scott Muni. Well, there but then it gets complicated when they start dictating what you're supposed to play. Yes. And they start giving you a format. Right, right. Which, which ultimately, um, a year and a half later at ABC, that happened. They were not getting the ratings, but they knew there was a buzz on the street. They knew they were reaching a lot more people than the ratings were uh, reflecting. And that's right. when they changed the call letters, WPLJ. But it was still an uphill battle for them. At the same time, WNEWFM, which had, what was that? All right, that was the horn. <laughs> out on the, was... out on the street. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they have noise in Park Slope. I can't believe we haven't had a siren yet. No, so no, no siren. Very quiet. Yet. Yeah. Um, where was it? Say what NEW was doing. Oh yeah, NEW 
kind of um, uh, was already established from like 67, 68 as the main underground progressive rock. There were all these different names for what the music was because it was not, it, it wasn't top 40. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't just hit music. It was something other. It was something different that included singer-songwriters and included folk music and included rock and roll and blues and, and you know, Miles Davis when he plugged in and went electric and, you know, all that stuff was all part of part of the scene. Yeah. And depending upon where you were, it was called progressive radio or it was called alternative radio or album-oriented radio, which is to say that you played more than just the single from an album you you went deep cuts into the album you know you you, right. you went deeper you you played anything from the album that you felt was was worthy of uh, attention so uh eventually that didn't that didn't work you know cuz people people were indulgent self-indulgent some more so than others i mean i was guilty of of being uh, indulgent in that I exercised my my vocal, you know, on air thing, maybe more than other people did. I talked. You like to talk. I talked too much. Yeah. Sure. And I also liked music that was a little off the beaten track, even for those days. Um, and I, you know, I was a folky, I liked, um, I liked show music. I liked, you know, I mean, it was different and it, it, it was, that spirit was infused in everything that I programmed on the air. Um, Michael Gascuna, like I said, he was a jazz guy, but so he was on in the mornings and he would play like Ornette Coleman for 20 minutes at eight, right. at eight o'clock on a Tuesday morning. And that just didn't work. If you were cool and hip, you were like, yeah, wow, this is great. It's like, remember when you, you listened to, to W FMU a lot when, when, you know, in high school and early college years, and there would be times listening to FMU, which is, still one of the great freeform radio stations of the world when they would go off on such tangents yeah you know playing like i heard them i was in the car the other day and i heard some guy playing what sounded like japanese um heavy like that growling metal music you know yeah. where where the vocalist is like yeah. You know, only he was, it sounded like it was Japanese, but he was growling in that deep huh? animal voice. And I was like, huh. and it was, it was scaring me. I finally yeah. had to turn it to tune out. I couldn't listen to it anymore because it was like, you know, the image of, of, uh, the, the horrible, um, um, Japanese torturers in all those World War II movies, <laughs> no. you know? It was like, oh, my God, no, he's become a, a, yeah. a heavy, hard rock. That's what I mean. Oh, man. So it works for a hip audience of Kate and Vin Skelsa types up until a point. 
Right. But for the general audience, nobody's going to really want to sit and listen to an hour of, you know, Gregorian chant, because right. that happens to be what the person who's on the radio now is into, followed by somebody else who's into, uh, you know, Vietnamese rock and roll from, from uh, the late 60s. Well, and it's you complicated know. because at this point in time, there's so much about it that involves politics and involves youth culture and this idea of how can we have the palatable part of this in order to appeal to that group, but not go all the way with, right, like really outrageous bohemian you know, artsy, artsy yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's a delicate balance. It really is. And because a lot of the people who were working on radio stations like ABC FM slash PLJ were really, uh, they weren't really professional radio people. They had fallen into it the way I had fallen into it. And they were interested in other things, um, other forms of working in the music business, you know, in, in some other capacity, in record companies or whatever. And they just, they didn't really give a shit, right. you know? And if, if, if their radio career was going to blow up, so what? So it blew up. Or if they wanted to stay in radio, they were quite willing to um, give up their autonomy for the paycheck. Yeah. And and both of those things happened. There were people who walked away. I kept walking away from stations when they would finally get to that point where they took away the autonomy. Or there were people who would, you know, for one reason or another, and I don't mean to to um, uh, to be negative about them. I think a lot of my my peers stayed in radio because they had families that were coming into being and um they were the breadwinners and this is what they had to do to 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 work a a, a very cool job you know in a big market like New York so if you had to kowtow to the playlists and to the consultants and all of that sort of thing you know you did it I don't uh, I don't fault anybody for that, but it led to a kind of radio that, as it became more and more ensconced, um, got to be more and more lowest common denominator, and right. and and the rest of us were always relegated to um, to uh, specialty shows and non-commercial stations, and you know, right. left of center or late at night or you know. Can you tell the Zacherly story? Oh, God, yeah, the Zacherly story. John Zacherly, who is still alive and who is, at this point, I believe, about 98 years old. I think he was born in 1918. I think he lives in Florida now, although he may be back up in New York now. I know he lived with his his ailing mother, who also lived... Um, very long in, in Florida for a while towards the end of her life. So I don't know where he is now. But Zachary was this odd character who got involved with a kind of creative local television in the 50s. Um, he would do these horror movie shows where he became 
a character, I believe the original character that he played was named Roland. And Roland was this sort of, um, what's, is, there's a word, dis, dis something, but I can't think of the word now. Dis, dis, uh, hated or dis, he was just like, he, he was, um, he was just a couple of beats shy of being scary, you know? But like he, almost a Vincent Price. Yeah, like, a, like a Vincent Price, but, but campier than Vincent Price, okay. even if you could imagine that. And he, he dressed up in ghoulish type suits and he had these characters around him and he would talk in between the scenes of the movies he was showing. And he figured out early on how to essentially green screen himself into the movies that he was showing <laughs> on local TV in the 50s. So kids watched him and thought he was a hoot. And as you got older and and hipper, you began to appreciate him on on even more levels. Like you got the kind of um, uh, sophisticated alcoholic drug relation that he was um, insinuating <laughs> with his sure. with his persona. So right. as you as you got older, you stayed with him, and ultimately, uh, he got a gig at WNEW to be uh, an on-air DJ because that audience now was the prime audience for what NEW was doing, this new kind of music with this new kind of presentation. Zach was a, was a quick study. You know, he picked up on the music um, very quickly. And he was... Um, he was a, a a unique character on the radio on NEW and people just absolutely ate him up. They loved him. You know, he was a guy who was much older. I mean, when I say Dave Herman was 10 years older, Zach, you know, figure out what his age was if he was born in 1918. Right. Um, and he came across as, uh, as always being in character who he was on those TV shows and who he was behind the microphone that's who he was. Right. He didn't drop it. No, he never dropped it. And he he traveled around like a like a shopping bag guy, you know, like a like a homeless guy. like he always had all his stuff with him, right? right. And he was always uh he'd come into the the studio uh at, at NEW uh people would tell me I didn't work with him there. Um, you know, and he'd be carrying his his meal and a bunch of records and all sorts of tapes were spilling out and books and notes. And uh, that was Zachary. You just accepted that from him. So Zachary's working at, at NEW and NEW, while it's it's a fairly liberal station where the DJs have autonomy in the 60s, the late 60s. It doesn't have that extra left of center cutting edge identity that ABC FM slash PLJ has at that point in 71, you know, in, in late 70 into 71. And everybody knew that Zach really wanted to be on PLJ. That was where he thought he was going to finally completely come into his character 
in rock and roll radio, in mm -hmm. underground progressive radio. So his contract was up for renewal, and the word was that Zach was negotiating with Alan Shaw, a local station manager in New York of, of ABC FM slash PLJ, and Zach was going to come to us. Zach came to us and signed his contract and everything a few days before Alan Shaw held the big meeting in the big conference room on the 8th or ninth floor of that building, the ABC building, the meeting in which he was going to finally, with heavy heart, tell us that we were just losing too much money and that we're going to begin to control slightly the, uh, the music that was played by instituting a very timid playlist mm -hmm. of two or three songs an hour. You still had total freedom other than that, but you had to play from a group of, of recordings and you had to play two or three of them an hour, whatever it was. It was the beginnings of of a playlist. And what kind of stuff would it be? Just top 40 stuff? No, no. It would be the stuff you were playing anyhow. You know, it was, um, it was uh, Paul McCartney. It was Peter Frampton. It was, uh, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the bands were that were playing at the Fillmore. I mean, it was still... The days pre pre what became known as corporate rock, you know, it was right. still it was the but it was the most popular of those artists. Okay. And, and and the point is, if you played them, if everybody's playing from a a batch of let's say fifty or sixty songs, if everybody's playing two or three of them an hour, then they're going to start to get heard with with a degree of repetition. Yeah. And that's going to become different from what people were used to hearing on on a station like PLJ. Right. So it was it 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 I think it broke Alan Shaw's heart to have to do this, but he knew he was getting pressure from the 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 suits above him to do this. In the meantime, Zach has has signed a contract He's left NEW and he's coming to PLJ and his first meeting is this meeting. And we're like, holy shit, what's that going to say when he can Because we didn't know. Shaw kept it pretty secret. We didn't know. Up, You know, there was like rumors, but but the rumors were not substantiated anywhere. So we, you know, it was like, well, what's, what's he going to do at this meeting? What's Shaw going to do? And then if he does what the rumors suggest he does, what's, how's Zach going to react? Right. So Zach comes in about an hour before the meeting just to say hello and introduce himself to everybody. And he's a very jovial, sweet man, very friendly, smoked a lot of, a lot of dope, you know, a lot of marijuana and was, yeah. was just sort of happy. He was like Uncle Marty, you know, he yeah. was just like a happy, go lucky, you know, crazy guy. 
And he comes in with all of his shopping bags and everything. And uh, <laughs> finally, it's like, uh, oh, well, Shaw's going to have the meeting now. And all of us are sitting around this huge conference table. And, and Zach comes in and he puts his shopping bags under the table. And he's sitting there and he's listening. And slowly, Shaw is revealing what anybody can see is, even though it's a relatively um, uh, limited playlist anybody can see that it's the beginning of the end you know you can see where this is going where right. where, where it's going to lead to and we're all sort of looking at, at at zach out of the corners of our eyes wondering and his face is like like mount rushmore you know he's just it's immobile nothing's moving on his face he's just he's just still and when shaw finally stops and takes a breath, we see Zach slowly push his chair back from this big wooden conference table. And he stands up, but he's still hunched over, and, and his right arm is under the table. And as he slowly makes himself erect, he brings up what appeared to be a machine gun. It didn't look like a toy. It looked like the real thing. And we're like, huh? Everybody's, you know, everybody's sucked in their breath and, and hearts stopped beating and uh, women, you know, were almost near faint. And he takes this machine gun and he points it directly at Alan Shaw. And he goes in his inimitable Zack fashion. You dirty son of a bitch. And he pulls the trigger and out pops a flag. And I don't remember now whether it was the peace flag or the American flag. Oh, my God. I don't remember which flag it was, but, you know, it was a toy gun made to look very, very natural, very real. And for a split second, we all thought, oh, my God, this is the end. You know, because that kind of stuff was happening in those days. It was Altamont, you know, it was the Manson family. It was all, and, and everybody knew that Zach was not quite all there. At least he didn't seem to be. He was, you know, he was a thorough professional, but he was also a character. And he knew, he knew this about the, the, the format and he planned this he did know. reaction. He knew because he had signed. He didn't carry that around with him just in case he brought that yeah he brought that specifically he brought the gun specifically because he knew what was going to come down at this and he was genuinely um heartbroken that he had left what was really the ideal setup at any at new because the grass looked greener at plj and he became incredibly successful there and very popular there over the course of uh, the 70s. I mean, he became one of their prime stars. Um, so it worked out for him. So it worked out for him, sure. I mean, he, you know, he missed being uh, the the proprietor of, um, you know, the, 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 the music and, and the, the presenter of the music, but they still let him be Zach. Yeah. You know, he was still able to use his humor and, and his personality on the air. 
But uh, oh man, that was it was the it was the weirdest, funniest, oh, most wonderful God. things. Like holy shit, what's he gonna do? <laughs> and and emotions ran that that hot and heavy over oh, something God. like this. You know, this was um, we all whether we were into being professional radio people or not, we all held this kind of freeform radio to be almost like sacred. Right. Don't you don't fuck around with this. Don't you don't mess around with this. And now that somebody finally had, now that the that the villainous conservative ABC head finally, you know, uh, revealed itself, uh it was not inconceivable that somebody might flip out and start oh you know shooting the place up <laughs> uh. i mean it's you know now it's it's um in remarkable bad taste to think that somebody did this but but back then it you know it it to, it to bring prank. to bring us full circle yeah it 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 was what it was <laughs> you know and like you said yeah it was a good prank so how much longer did you last once they instituted the partial? Ah, uh, maybe maybe a month or two. Not much. And you were doing the show at that point. Now, now I was like a full time. Yeah, I was doing a show in the afternoons there, um, full time, and uh, I just I saw the handwriting on the wall, and I didn't want to do it because I couldn't. That's the thing for me. It's always been like constitutionally impossible for me to do radio with a playlist. Even if I made up the playlist, even if it was my playlist, you know, it, when we get to some point in the eighties in these podcasts, I'll tell you a story about me and Mark Chernoff at K rock and, and, uh, um, me putting together a playlist. I mean, that's the whole story basically was, I did a, I did, I filled in for the overnight guy for a week. You know, I was doing my shows on Sunday night, free, total free form. But the overnight guy, he was able to do like a couple hours of free form. But at five o'clock in the hour before Howard Stern would come on at six, he yeah. had to go back to the playlist from five to six. And Mark said, and Mark was, you know, a friend of mine because we knew him from school because his wife was one of the teachers at your school. Right. And, you know, you know, nice, friendly guy. Mark was like, I'm sorry, but, you know, five o'clock, you really have to. But well, I'll tell you what. Well, you I'll read to you over the phone the songs from the different categories and you can pick them <laughs> so you won't be doing my playlist or the computer's playlist, you'll be picking the playlist. Yeah. I said, oh, okay. So he'd give me, all right, from from column A, you can play Van Morrison or John Lennon or uh, Dwayne Allman or... I said, all right, well, let me give... Give me Van Morrison. Okay, so Van Morrison. And then column B, you know, gave me the choices and said, all right, give me Carol King. Uh, okay, give me uh, Pink Floyd. Okay. And I programmed the hour. And the next morning at five o'clock, when it came time for me to play those songs, I was incapable of doing it <laughs> because that's what I wanted to play a day ago, talking on the phone to Mark. Right. That's not what I wanted to play now in real time. 
Right. I couldn't do it. Right. <laughs> and I had well, to, and so I, you know, I played other songs. Some oh, of them man. were were by those artists, but I was, and Mark, you know, calls me up later that day and he goes, "Huh, oh, what happened?" I said, "Mark, I can't do it." And then he says, "Not even your own playlist." <laughs> Something just is well because it feels insincere to you. Yeah, that you're presenting this, or are you just that stubborn? No, it's no, no, it's not that I'm stubborn. I mean, I am stubborn, but that's not what this is. This is (laughs) my my whole identity as a radio guy was completely wrapped up in my ability to program the music. And, right and and the music of that moment of that of the moment. moment yeah and what was going on in my head what was going right. on in the world you know right. some weird thing was happening in the news overnight that i wanted to comment on or whatever you know it was live radio and right. for me that meant you know responding in the moment couldn't do it yeah so i left I left PLJ, and uh, Dave Herman left PLJ a couple of months after I did, and he went to NEW. And it was Dave Herman who spoke to Scott Muni, who was the program director at NEW, um, unbeknownst to me, prompted Scott to give me a call because they were looking for somebody to fill in for Dave for a week while he went on vacation. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately how I got to NEW, which became my home in 1973 for the next nine years and where I made my my big mark, uh, my first big mark in uh, in New York commercial radio. And that's a story for another podcast, <laughs> I think, if that's okay with you. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm, talked, I'm talked out here, kid. I can't. I know. I can't talk anymore. I know you did. You did good talking. So let's recap. For television, we want people to watch difficult people on uh, on Hulu. That's right. Uh, for books, we want them to read Tim Murphy's Christadora, uh-huh. which is a, a marvelous book that takes place. It's a fiction that takes place on the Lower East Side, based around Christadora House, which is a real building on the corner of Avenue B and Ninth Street. And it it takes place over decades, and it's got it's just it's so it's such a New York book. Yeah, I want them to read that, and we want them to read this nonfiction book about Hemingway and his pals, and what went into and influenced the writing of Hemingway's "The Sun Also Rises." Yeah, and felt what, everybody behaves badly. Everybody behaves badly, and the author of that is somebody with. M.M. is her name. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. M- M&M. M&M. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, and they can eat M&M. And they can eat M&M's while they're reading all of those things. And yeah. and uh, I hope that you're keeping cool this Oh, summer. yeah. Yeah? Definitely. You got that air conditioner cranking up the... The air conditioner is going. Yeah. How are the cats? They're good. They're yeah. so cute. Does the heat bother them? Mm, no. I mean, we really keep the air on all the time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I wanted to say I should go see Ghostbusters. It's really, really oh, fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. You saw it when it, right when it came out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we it's, haven't. Uh, 
a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's totally worthwhile. Cool. Were you a fan of the original movie? No, and people who are would probably say that's why I can like this one. Ah, I see. All the purists are yeah. saying this is ruining their childhood. Oh, give me a break. I feel like you? they can't get over it. Yeah. Hillary Clinton for president, man. Come on. <laughs> get over your fear of women. Your, f your, the f your fear of the vagina, for heaven's uh, sake. Grow up, America. Grow up. That seems like a good place to end. All right. Take care, Kate Skelsa. All right. Thanks, Dad. Bye, baby. Love you. Bye. Love you. Okay, bye. Bye.